volume was turned off right when Dave said that. <clears throat> it's fairly ominous. Well, good morning again. Thank you. <laughs> if you have your Bibles or you've got your uh, cellular cellophone apps with your Bibles on it, our word of the Lord comes to us today from Hebrews chapter 3, verses 7 to 19. Um, as you turn there, I'll talk for a moment about the text. We are coming to what is one of Hebrews' warning passages, and there's maybe the um, idea that you need to you know, lay the hammer down or something or, or work up yourself up into a bit of a frenzy when you're giving the warning passage to the church. I don't believe that's necessarily so. All of Hebrews is a pastoral letter. This is a word of encouragement and exhortation, and this passage is as well. Verse 13 is really kind of the crux of the entire passage. It says, exhort one another as long as it's called today. And that's really what this whole passage is about, exhorting one another. So it is a warning passage. It's got serious content, serious warnings, but it's meant to be an exhortation aid to us. It's talking about the necessity of perseverance in the life of the Christian. It uses the Old Testament um, Exodus, the Israelites, as the example, which we see frequently in the New Testament. It says, look back at these Israelites and see how they lived. Don't do what they did, which is kind of a, a repeated refrain. It's saying, persevere. If you want to make it to the promised land, if you want to make it to God's rest, persevere. Run the race is the metaphor that Paul uses quite a bit. Um, a long time ago, I, I ran competitively, and we were always told, run through the line. You see so many people kind of stop right before the tape, and everybody goes right by them, and they end up in about fifth place. That's the Christian life. Run through the line. Don't stop when you get to the line. Persevere. Run through it. This is an exhortation. Hebrews 3, verses 7 and 19. This is God's word for God's people. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, They always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God, but exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not those, with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see they were not able to enter because of unbelief. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, I've, I've said this in prayers before. I say it again. I, I echo this passage. Today, if we hear your words, if we hear the voice of the Holy Spirit, from your word, let us not harden our hearts as happens so often and has happened in the day of testing, the day of rebellion. Your word will not return void, Lord. You send it out to accomplish a purpose. It will accomplish its purpose, and I pray that that purpose for us 
would be that you would break down proud hearts, that you promote humility and unity in the body, that we would exalt our Savior, King Jesus, and that we would be a holy people, a righteous people, a people who are examples of what Christ-likeness is to this community who needs Christ's love so badly. So we pray all these things in the name of our King Jesus. Amen. It's been quite an, a journey through the book of Hebrews. We've seen just some soaring and glorious truths of the Lord Jesus Christ in these first few chapters. In our last message from the book of Hebrews, which was verses 1 through 6 of chapter 3, we saw an admonition to consider or set your thoughts upon Jesus Christ because of who he is as our great and supreme Savior and because of who we are as holy brothers. It's a question of identity. Worship God according to who he actually is. Yourselves behave who you are as born-again believers, people filled with the Holy Spirit, with new natures. Consider Jesus because of these things. And at the end of that passage in verse 6b, the second half of verse 6, we were told that we are God's house if we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. And that was a bit of a cliffhanger because I didn't really cover it. That wasn't the main thrust of the message at the time. If, if, we are God's house, if. So what does that mean? Well, we didn't examine it any further than to say that that if is there, whether we want it to be there or not. It's in that sentence and we can't ignore it no matter what our theological preferences are or our personal uh, inclinations might be. It's in the Bible, we have to deal with it. The Bible says we are God's house if we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. If we do not hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope, we are not God's house. This is a condition. It's a condition of perseverance. The inspired writer of the book of Hebrews says that unless this condition is met, we are not God's house. And there is a condition for those who profess that they are followers of the Lord Jesus. This isn't the opinion of theologians. This is what God's word says is true. And we are showing a case in point here in God's word and from God's word in our text today. In the last message, we didn't explore this uh, verse any further because it's a huge topic for one, and also it's a lead-in to the passage which followed, which is our passage today, verses 7 to 19. The author was saying, consider Jesus, we are God's house, and then he links into where we're going this week and the next time that I speak. The section we're looking at today is one of five so-called warning passages in the book of Hebrews which the author includes to alert the original readers of the book of Hebrews and us today to the dangers of neglecting Jesus Christ and his gospel, the dangers of unbelief and the dangers of sins such as improper worship. Now, we already looked at one of these warning passages a while ago. That was chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Um, you'll remember it says, how shall, we neglect such a, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? And we were told... There will be no escape for those who neglect Jesus Christ and his gospel for the repentance, for the forgiveness of sin. And while these are, there are these five warning passages in the book of Hebrews, they, they aren't unique to this book. It's not just the thing that the author of the Hebrews decides he wants to talk about. These warnings exist throughout scriptures in both the Old and the New Testaments. In, in fact, we're looking at a warning passage today in the New Testament, which itself 
is using a passage from the Old Testament showing us that the inspired writers themselves understood the, uh, the, and emphasized the continuity of the Bible's teachings on this topic. There are, um, just, just kind of parenthetically, there are hundreds of Old Testament references within the New Testament, which shows us that the Old Testament, as opposed to what a lot of modern teachers say today, is still completely and totally relevant for Christians to study and be aware of. Jesus gave several famous warning passages. You remember the one he said, uh, not everybody who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but those who do the will of my Father. Paul gave warnings. James gave warnings. John gave warnings. Peter gave warnings. These aren't isolated or obscure passages in the Bible, but sometimes we treat them as if they are. We, we get our little uh, wide out, and we take them out because we don't like those. Uh, Babylon Bee had this joke, and they were um, pretending to offer this... Uh, this Bible which had uh, pages that you can more easily rip out. So when you get to the stuff in Scripture you don't like, just tear it out. Goodbye, Romans 9. Goodbye, warning passages. Love my neighbor? Nope, definitely don't love that guy. You know, warning passages aren't popular passages in our time, in our culture. And I think maybe they're never popular in any time or culture. But the sad result of picking and choosing passages we like to hear from God over the ones we choose to ignore is that it causes us to be ignorant of deadly serious doctrinal issues that the Bible presents to us. You can't go to the doctor and say that you really love the results of your weigh-in, but you're just going to totally ignore the cancer diagnosis because that's bad news. You don't want to hear that. You're going to die a painful death if you do that. But that's just your physical body. We're talking about where you're going to spend eternity when it talks to matters of, of the Bible and Scripture. These are things that we have to consider. God doesn't say anything that's unnecessary or irrelevant or inconsequential for us to hear. If we think, uh, I don't know, this might happen if you're reading 1st and 2nd Kings and then you get to Chronicles and you're like, we've read this already. But we, if we have that attitude, we're beginning to say that God's one of those people that just doesn't know when to stop talking. That he says too much. And we, 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 okay, we got it, God. You can just cease what you're saying now. But God has given us his word, his whole word, to live by, to grow by, and to reach our maximal human flourishing in this life. And it's the height of pride to think that we can ignore what God has said. And in fact, our very passage this morning tells us that ignoring and not believing God's word is the symptom of an evil heart. Again, that's one of those things that if I was writing it, I probably would say I might soften that a little bit, but that's what the text says. The unbelieving heart is an evil heart. So consider this irony that the passage before us today tells us to beware of hardening our hearts when we hear God's word, yet many of us choose to ignore this passage and others because we don't like what it says or what it demands from us. We don't like the warning passages of God's word telling us not to ignore God's word, so we ignore it. We don't like the commands of Scripture that place burdens of obedience or calls to action or good works or life change upon us, so we just skip them and, or cancel them. Like maybe God's grading on a curve, and uh, if all, everyone else in my church are kind of not that good Christians. Maybe I don't have to be one either. But the Bible says that if you don't love others, then you can't love God, and that you're an, an empty professor. We'll cancel that one. The Bible says, is the Ephesians passage we just read this morning, that God elected and predestined us for salvation. Definitely cancel that one. 
The Bible says that if you're not obeying the Lord Jesus Christ, you don't belong to him. Cancel. The Bible says that if your faith doesn't have accompanying good works, it's a dead faith that can't save you. And I'll let it interfere with my plans, so cancel that one too. There are many more such passages, and the whole book of 1 John is a, is a, contains excellent examples. 1 John is a book which says, here's what Christians are like, here's what those who are truly born again look like, and here's what people who he calls the children of the devil are like. Um, it's a great book, and I encourage you to read through it. You know, you could do it in like 30 minutes, but uh, this week at least read through 1 John, or if you're a woman, sign up for that upcoming 1st, 2nd, 3rd John study. Now, I just listed four items out of hundreds which cause people to either close their Bibles or start frothing at the mouth. But these are things, and there are others like them, that are in the Scriptures. And ignoring or canceling them is the very kind of heart-hardening that we're being warned against in our passage today. So this, this, kind, of, this kind of irony just floats over the, the whole passage. Well, there's so much stuff we don't like in Scripture. And this passage is telling you, don't harden your hearts when you hear them. Well, I don't like it that it says that. Well, you're hardening your hearts, which is exactly what we're warning you against. Do you see? By ignoring these warning passages or any others, we're guilty of the very same thing that, the, that they're warning us about. If you drive down the highway, you'll sometimes see these signs that say, please don't drink and drive, and often they'll be like the memorial of the, the poor person that was harmed or killed by uh, that drunk driving. Now, what if you were driving down the road and you saw the sign, but you didn't read it because you were too drunk. You'd be committing the very sin that the sign is warning you against. The Bible has many dire warnings, serious warnings for professing Christians, for those who say that they're God's own people, to pay attention to. They are real warnings. They are meant to be heard and read, and they are intended to cause us to examine ourselves and see whether we're living in line with God's teachings. Remember a few messages in Hebrews ago, I, I quoted C.S. Lewis who said, how can you say that something's crooked unless you know what straight is? How can people say the world is broken and evil unless they know that it's supposed to be good and, and unbroken? So similarly, how are we supposed to examine ourselves to know whether we're running within the lanes of, of the race unless we know what the rules are, unless we know this is how we are supposed to live as Christians? You know, there's been a lot of, uh, of articles about um, this big track meet going on. I haven't read any of them, but I saw, you know, baton getting passed. And that reminded me of my own track and field days and how sad it is when you cross, when you go too far without getting the baton crossed. Or if you drop the baton, you get disqualified. If you don't compete according to the rules, you are disqualified. So it's necessary for us to be able to understand these warning texts so that we can examine ourselves, so that we can see if we're running within the lines or not. We want to be able to check and see if we are keeping in step with the Holy Spirit. You know, if we love the Lord God, if we truly believe He is our loving Father, then we want to pay attention to the things He has to say to us. Or else, perhaps, we're showing that we don't actually believe that He is who He says He is. Is He your loving Father who wishes you good, who intends for you to have good, and why would you want, not want to hear everything he has to say to you? It's an evil, unbelieving heart that doesn't take God at his word, all of God's word, and not just the parts that we find more agreeable to our predispositions. All of us kind of, kind of we lean heavy in some, some aspects of God's word and we don't like others. All of us have that. But we can't say, I'm only going to listen to the things I like. 
Because in reality, all of God's word is true. All of God's word is good. And all of it must be taught and considered by those who call upon the name of Jesus. And one commentator said, there's nothing in the word of God of which any Christian needs be afraid. And if there's a single verse in it which conflicts with his creed, so much the worse for his creed. That is, you call yourself a follower of Christ, then why should you be afraid of anything the Holy Spirit has to say to you? If anything you read in the Bible contradicts your personal creed or your personal theology, you need to change your creed or your theology. That's why I really don't like the labels that we put, the, the denominational labels. On, are you Reformed? Are you Pentecostal? Are you this? What does the Bible say? That's what I care about. I don't want to join the club. What does Scripture say? If the Scriptures say something that contradicts my Pentecostalism or Reformed theology, I'm changing it. I don't, want to, I don't want to say I'm holding on to my personal beliefs when they absolutely contradict what the Holy Spirit has spoken to me. Moreover, we have this, this well-known and well-loved verse from Paul, 2 Timothy 3, 16 to 17. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The Apostle Paul says, all scripture, and the Greek word for scripture there is graphe, it's referring to what's written. Because we're talking about the Bible. All of the Bible is God-breathed. It's inspired by God. Its source, its place of origin is within God himself. And all of it, all of it is profitable for the Christian. Profitable for what? It says the Bible is sufficient to make you complete and to equip you for every good work. That's a pretty big statement, isn't it? You think of every good work that a Christian can do. Every good work Scripture equips you to do. Again, the point of emphasizing all of this today isn't a lengthy introduction. You know, um, you know, I'm not just trying to fill in the space here, but it is to remind us to avoid the very same effort, uh, uh, errors that our text today is warning us to avoid, hardening our hearts against God's word. Now, some of us here very possibly do not believe that all of Scripture is God's inspired and true word, which is necessary and sufficient and authoritative and profitable. And as such a person, I would say, listen to what God has to say to you this morning from his word. And listen how seriously God takes hard, unbelieving hearts. So let's start again in verse 6b before we begin our passage. Verse 6b. Your Bibles probably don't say 6b. Mine doesn't. But it's the second half of verse 6. Incidentally, the, uh, for the first 1,500 years of church history, your verse and chapter markings weren't in your Bible. So these, these were added later on by, by editors. So that's why it's, it's not sacrilegious to say 6b. It's okay. 6b. We are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. This one verse on its own isn't very clear. Um, so what does it mean? It says, we are God's house if we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. What does it mean to hold fast our confidence and what, it does it, what happens if we're not God's house? Well, the author wishes for this to be clear to us, so he spends the rest of chapter 3 and most of chapter 4 explaining what this means. He's, he gives this entire exposition on it. For us, this morning, that means that today's message... And the message that I give from chapter 4 next time will be aspects of what chapter 6 be <coughs> introduces to us. So if you wanted the spoilers, <coughs> you can read ahead 
um, to most of the end of chapter four, and you'll kind of get the full spectrum of what he's talking about. We're just going to the end of chapter three this morning, obviously. Verse seven to 11 of our passage say, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways as I swore in my wrath. They shall not enter my rest. Our passage this morning is divided up into three portions. And uh, this first portion, verses 7 to 11, is a quote from Psalm 95, where the author of the psalm is recalling the rebellion of the Israelites in the desert against God. And he calls for the readers of the psalm to not do what their forefathers did by rebelling against God and thereby receiving punishment for their rebellion. So Psalm 95 obviously was was written to um, covenant Israel. It was, as we learn in uh, uh, chapter 4, verse 7, it was the human author was, was King David. So we know it was, it was during his, his time. Um, and this psalm was well known by Jews at the time. The author of Hebrews' uh, audience, being Jewish Christians, would have recognized it immediately because this line of, today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts, was recited as a call to worship in synagogues on, on every Sabbath evening. It was just one of those things that everybody knew really well. What's immediately important for us to notice is how the author of Hebrews introduces the psalm in verse 7. It says, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says. The author of Hebrews identifies God himself as the, Bible, as the author and the source of the Bible's writings. He says, these, these aren't just some nice wisdom sayings that you might get on a fortune cookie. This is the Holy Spirit speaking. And just as Paul does with the Second Timothy passage that we looked at just a moment ago, what is written down in our Bibles is what God the Holy Spirit put there. The author equates the written text of the Bible with God's own speech, with God's own word, which is why when I start these messages, I say, this is God's word for God's people. This is what God has said to you. Moreover, the author doesn't say the Holy Spirit said he says, the Holy Spirit says, as in, this is still the Holy Spirit speaking authoritatively to us today in his words recorded in the Bible. What the Bible says is what God says, and that has immense implications for its authority in our lives and how we need to respond to it. One thing that continually blows me away, and I certainly don't live up to it myself, but it's... Since the Bible's true, since everything, in what it says is the words of our creator to his creation, the potter to the clay, how should I be living my life in response to that? Things need to change. I cannot be living the same way in response that my creator has spoken to me with authority. There has to be a response to that. Writing to a, a Christian audience from Jewish backgrounds, the author is warning his readers and us of committing the same heart hardening, I'm going to mess this up a lot, hard-hardening and hard-hardening rebellion that the Israelites in the desert did. It's crazy because they saw God's miracles. Think of what they went through between in the book of Exodus. 
They saw the 10 plagues of Egypt. They saw the parting of the Red Sea. They saw the pillar of cloud come between Pharaoh's army and them while they walked across the sea. They heard God's voice at Sinai where there were thunder and flashes of lightning and the earth shook. They heard God's voice and they were so terrified. They said, we don't want to hear it anymore. You know, you talk to Moses and we'll hear it from him instead. They witnessed these things. They saw them and ate manna. They saw water come from a rock. They saw all of these things and they still hardened their hearts and refused to believe in God. So in Numbers 14, 11, God says, this is a huge passage. This is a huge verse. The Lord said to Moses, how long will this people despise me and how long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I've done among them? There's no evidence problem with these people. This was a heart problem. It's similar to what Paul talks about in Romans 1. The unbelief of the Israelites was especially reprehensible because they had all of the evidence a person could possibly dream of for God's existence, for God's power, and for God's presence. They saw manifestations of the power of God that no one has seen since, and they still hardened their hearts. And so, in verses 10 through 11 of our passage, quoted from Psalm 95, the Lord says, Therefore I was provoked with that generation and said, They always go astray in their hearts. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. The Israelites who left Egypt and saw all of these remarkable signs of God's power rebelled against God. They provoked God to the point where he said, I'm through with you and your rebellion. You will not enter my rest, but instead you're going to die out here in the desert. Later in Numbers 14, it reads, But truly as I live and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, none of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and yet have put me to the test these ten times and have not obeyed my voice shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers, and none of those who despise me shall see it. And the Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron, saying, How long shall this wicked congregation grumble against me? I have heard the grumblings of the people of Israel, that which they grumble against me. Say to them, As I live, declares the Lord, what you have said in my hearing, I will do to you. Your dead bodies shall fall in the wilderness, and all of your number listed in the census from 20 years old and upward, who have grumbled against me, not one shall come to the land where I swore that I would make you dwell except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun. But as for you, your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness. The hard, unbelieving hearts of these Israelites in the desert finally provoked God to act against them. And this is the warning that the psalmist and the author of Hebrews is conveying to us as well today. Look at the unbelief of the Israelites. Look at how they provoked God and failed to trust in his word and in his promises. Look how God responded to that, their unbelief. God told them, your dead bodies will fall in this wilderness. Therefore, today, if you hear God's voice, do not harden your hearts, as in the rebellion. Now, someone here might object by saying, yeah, well, that was the Old Testament. That was, that was Old Testament grumpy God. And God doesn't act the same way anymore. And it's surprising how much you will actually hear that kind of jargon these days. But we have to ask ourselves, where are we reading this right now? It's the New Testament. And who is the audience? Followers of Jesus, Christians. 
we're reading this warning in the New Testament book of Hebrews in which the author up to this point has been tirelessly laboring to tell Jewish Christians that following and serving the risen and glorious Lord Jesus Christ is better and superior to going back to their old lives. The entire context of this warning is for Christians, as in New Covenant believers following Jesus Christ. This isn't a, an irrelevant lesson in history. This is a lesson from history to be taken seriously. Look at the hard-heartedness of Israel who died in the desert for their unbelief and don't be like them. And let's not ever try to divide and separate God and treat him as if he's a different being now than he was in the Old Testament. Again, you'd be shocked, unless you think this way, you'd be shocked how often that comes up. There's a really famous author who wrote an entire book trying to tell Christians to not read the Old Testament. There was an early heretic, I think it was Marcion, very early. He didn't like the stuff of the Old Testament. He didn't like the Old Testament gods. He decided, I'm going to get rid of the Old Testament. I'm going to take all of the Old Testament references out of the New Testament. So he wound up with a very short New Testament. <laughs> but it was just totally hairball, um, heresy. I sound like my dad when I say hairball, don't I? I'm going to have to stop that. I'm not going to do any Monty Python uh, quotes for you, unfortunately. And I, somebody else needs to tell him Austin Powers came out like 26 years ago, so nobody gets that reference anymore either. Anyway, we need to cut that right if he's going to listen to it, by the way. There's, there's never been a shortage of heretics in church history who do this, but their teaching is heretical because it contradicts what God himself has to say. Hebrews 11.26, which we will eventually get to, Lord willing, we're told that Moses considered the reproach of Christ greater than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. The scripture says that Moses set his thoughts on Christ. Moses understood that the great I Am would one day take on human flesh, and the same God he served, we served. Job, I think it's in chapter 19, he says, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. Even Job knew God was going to stand with human feet on the earth in the future. Jude 5 says, Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Did you catch that? Jesus saved the people out of Egypt, and later Jesus destroyed those who did not believe. The actions that we're reading about in Psalm 95, the author of Jude says, that was Jesus. The author says, Yahweh and Jesus Christ are one, which is, which is an immense truth to consider. And we are professing to serve this same Jesus. We're given his word, the Bible. So are we hardening our hearts to him just as the people he destroyed had done? Having quoted Psalm 95 in the first, three uh, first of the three portions of this passage and ascribing it to the Holy Spirit himself, the author of Hebrews makes this application in the second portion of our text. So in other words, he set up the example of the Israelites in the rebellion in the first portion, and now he's giving his readers the so what clause in the second portion, which is verses 12 through 15, which say, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an, unbelieving, an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confession firm to the end. As it is said, 
Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. So having given the historical example of rebellious Israel and the consequences of hard and rebellious hearts, the author of Hebrews now turns to the Christians he's writing to, and he says, watch out. Take care, lest there be among your Christian fellowship in your church um, an evil, unbelieving heart that causes you to fall away from the living God, just like what happened with Israel in the desert. Because it's possible for us, too, to be sitting in a church Sunday after Sunday and totally ignoring or disregarding what God is saying to us from his word when it is preached. And I've sat in the congregation, this, this one and others, so many times in my life, and I've seen people stand up in the middle of the service, walk out, and drive away because they don't like what's being taught. And some of them are trying to catch the Hawks game, perhaps, and some of them are... Uh, just have to be somewhere else. But I know that a lot of them walked out with hating the teaching because they'll often send emails saying why they walked out. And what reaction are you hoping for? I want to send them this passage. How much division and hard feelings happens in a church because of evil, unbelieving hearts that are refusing to take God at his word? And how many of you are still angry or perturbed over things Pastor Jim has taught over the last few months from the book of Romans. When you examine yourselves with any honesty, are you aware of whether or not you are actually rebelling against God's word being properly taught? And I don't want to exalt the, the little man up here as if he's an infallible repository of redemptive revelation, but when you hear the scripture being taught, accurately proclaimed, and you don't like it, are you examining yourself to see whether you're hardening your heart to what God's word says? If you want to take the white out, take the word predestined out of your Bible, when it is there, are you rebelling against God's word? And how do you know whether you're rebelling against word, or how do you know whether you're actually truly being discerning because there's a hairball up in the pulpit who shouldn't be there? Because that happens too. Well, look at verse 13. Exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Sin deceives us. We, we sin because we believe that this is the best choice in the moment. We think this is going to make us most happy. We think this is the best idea. Proverbs says a wave of fool is right in his own eyes. The fool thinks he's doing the right thing. We begin to believe a lie, and we don't realize it. That's the, that's the whole idea of being deceived by sin. So our first warning should be, when we find ourselves getting angry at the preaching and the reading of the Bible, to ask yourself, am I angry because I'm reading the Holy Spirit? It may be, but again, it might be because the, the, the little fellow up here said something inappropriate or, or wrong. But you have to ask, because you might be getting deceived by sin. And the point to underline here is that you are being deceived. And if your response to God's word, if your response to a passage read is anger, if it's contempt, if it's contentiousness, if it's mockery, you are hardening your heart to the word of God, the word of the Holy Spirit. You're guilty of the same sin and the same danger as the Israelites in the desert. And verse 13 says that it is necessary for Christians to be in fellowship with each other so that... Trusted elders and brothers and sisters in Christ can lovingly exhort us so that we aren't deceived by sin. We have to be surrounded with other Christians so that we aren't led away by sin's deceitfulness. 
You know, in that passage with the plank, Jesus says, you know, how can you take a speck out of your brother's eyes when you have a plank in your own? We, we often stop there. Like, don't tell me how to live my life. You've got the plank in your eye. But what does Jesus say? Remove the plank, then help your brother. Like, the brother needs help. Your brother needs help. He's not saying the speck isn't there. He's saying just make sure you're right as well. This is a community effort, in other words. Given the Bible's emphasis on Christian unity, and you know, Pastor Jim mentioned the, the high priestly prayer in John 17, and Jesus says, the unbelieving world will know that I was sent by the Father, by your unity. The unity of the church is going to be a witness to the community that, that our faith is real. Therefore, given the emphasis on Christian unity, given what this passage says about being in Christian fellowship, is it any wonder that when Satan gets a hold of one of us, the result is always division, that sin always leads to separation. I mean, you have to ask, why is the response to stand up and walk out? Why are we encouraged to divide? Why, why is that our, our first instinct when we don't like what we're hearing? No, you, all of you have been to, attended things, whether it's plays or, or music or whatever, where you didn't like what was there, but out of sheer politeness, you sat through it. Why, why is it when it comes to matters of faith, our, inst our instinct is to divide? because that's what Satan wants us to do. If we've learned nothing else we sh we should, from the previous few years of the COVID, we should know that Satan wanted to divide the church in, in this country especially, but throughout the world. You know, a Christian in the household of God, in the family of God, that's, that's us, is, has a safety among brothers and sisters. There's, there's a safety being around each other, being around folks who will lovingly care for you, pray for you, and, note, and say, hey, you've got a piece of wood in your eye. And the Christian divided from the family is like that wildebeest on those animal shows that get separated from the herd. The scripture warns us of a, of a roaring, prowling lion looking for someone to devour. And just like in Africa, the separated wildebeest gets it. The Christian who is separated from the flock will be eaten by the lion. And the outcome of division, as in this result of division, this, this fruit of division having been produced, is also going to tell you whether you're making the wrong choice and being deceived by sin. You know, there can be a time where you're sitting on one end of a question and thinking, is this the right thing or the wrong thing to do? But you can see how, it, how the outcome went. What were the results of my choice? Was it sin? Was it division? Well, then you can know you were wrong in the beginning. You took the wrong fork in the road. Which is why, you know, follow Yogi Berra's advice. If you find a fork in the road, take it. <laughs> you might think, you know, by standing up and walking out or, or refusing to even attend a fellowship anymore, and this is, this is speaking generally to Christians. Don't think I'm trying to pick on you, Calvary. But we might think that we're making this right decision, but listen to this. If the result of your choices is division and dissension within the body, and whether that means you leave or whether you cause division, hurting people and causing them to leave, you are wrong, and you've hardened your heart to God's word. If the result of your choices is division and dissension within the body of Christ, you are wrong, and you've hardened your heart to God's word. Observe the fruit of your choices, because we're being deceived. You need to see how these things have played out. Preaching on this passage, uh, Charles Spurgeon said, it's often a long and laborious process by which conscience is completely seared. The dreadful work usually begins thus. 
The man's first careful and, uh, carefulness and tenderness departs. The next distressing sign of growing hardness is increasing neglect or laxity of private devotion without any corresponding shock of the spiritual sensibilities on account of it. Another symptom is the fact that hidings of the Savior's face do not cause the acute and poignant sorrow that they produced in former times. Still further, when the soul is hardened to this extent, it's probable that sin will no longer cause such grief as it once did. The next step in this ladder, down, down, down to destruction, is that sin thus causing less grief is indulged in more freely. And after this, there is a still greater hardening of the heart. Listen to this. The man comes to dislike rebukes. He has sinned so long, and he has been held in such high respect in the church that if you give even a hint about his sin, he looks at you with a sharp look as if you were insulting him. If this hardening work goes on, the day at last comes to such a man that the word of God loses all effect upon him. I've seen that. You've probably all seen that as well. You try to say, hey, you're not living along to Scripture, and the person that acts like you're attacking them. Like, how can you be so blind? Well, this, this passage answers it. It's a hardening of the heart caused by the deceit of sin. It's refusing to listen to God's word. You cannot listen anymore. Everybody that tries to lovingly correct you to help you, you think is personally attacking you, and you wonder why it's you against the whole world. Well, let's do the math here. You're wrong. <laughs> Another commentator said, when a man has, from whatever motive, done something that is inconsistent with the law of Christ, he naturally sets himself to extenuate, to excuse, and if possible, defend his conduct. There is perhaps an attempt made to convince the mind that there's really no violation of the law of Christ that the ordinary way of interpreting the law is unduly strict. You've heard that one, right? Well, that's your interpretation. Or, if there is a violation, it was in his circumstances scarcely avoidable and, if not justifiable altogether, yet deserving of but very slight blame. Charles Spurgeon, this last commentator, John Brown, they taught a long time ago. Uh, Charles Battery just died. Oh, it's still going. <laughs> Nobody was supposed to hear that bit. Um, John Brown, who I just quoted, he was one of the old Puritan authors. This just tells us this isn't something new to the church. This is something that Christians have been having to deal with, obviously, since the time of Israel. This is something that, uh, that uh, is a longstanding uh, danger. These hearts, these hearts which were just described by these two commentators are called evil and unbelieving in verse 12. And the author of Hebrews says to his readers, Take care. Take care lest there be in any of you such a hard heart as this. Do not divide and flee, but stay in fellowship and have the humility to listen to what your brothers and sisters in Christ are trying to say to you. Have the grace to acknowledge that, surprise, you are not the infallible judge of what's good and evil, and it's possible for you, yes, you, to be led away by the deceitfulness of sin and the Lord Jesus Christ has created you and the church to be together, to be part of a body, to help avoid these snares. Jesus Christ made us dependent upon the church. He designed us this way. When we were born again, we were given this new nature. He created us to be dependent upon each other. And this is exactly why sin, when followed, leads to division. You know, if you wanted to kill a person, you divide them. If you want to kill a church, you divide it. 
And so the author of Hebrews continues in verses 14 to 15. For we've come to share in Christ if, indeed, we hold fast our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. As a spiritual family with the Lord Jesus as our brother, we, we share in Christ, we, but only if we hold fast our original confidence firm to the end. 1 John 2.19 repeats this truth. 1 John 2.19 says, in 1 John, there was, there was a big church split. That's kind of the context of that book. There, there's a huge church split. The ones who left were accusing the ones who stayed of being ignorant and immature, not Christians. And so John writes this letter to say, you know, here's the truth. Here's what a Christian is. So he writes about those who left. He says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us but they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. He's saying, First John, he's saying, they left to show that they didn't belong to us. It's the other way around. If they were of us, they wouldn't have left. And the original rebels in the desert did not share in God to the end. They divided. They divided from God. They broke with Moses. They broke with Caleb. They broke with Joshua. Caleb and Joshua said, we got God on our side. Let's go up and get them. We can take the land. It's overflowing with milk and honey. They were going to kill them for that. Their hard hearts caused them to divide from God's word, from God's people, and finally from God's peace. God caused their bodies to fall in the desert. And the author of Hebrews is using this very example to show us today in this room the dangers of hard and penitent hearts. So he moves on to this third section of our passage with three questions which are answered with three questions. He asks a question and he answers it with a question, and then he sums up his argument. So this third section is kind of just to underline his points. Verses 16 and 19, who were those who rebelled, who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all of those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but, but to those who were disobedient? And then he underlines it all. So we see they were not able to enter because of unbelief. So the author is making it clear who these rebels were. Who is it? who that heard, rebelled, and provoked God for 40 years, and to whom God swore they would not enter his rest. It was the Israelites who were led out of Egypt by Moses, who saw the ten, who saw the ten plagues and everything else, who sinned and whose bodies fell in the wilderness, who were disobedient. So the author says they did not enter God's rest because of unbelief. Again, I, we, we preach expositionally here. We go through books of the Bible. This is the passage which, which came up next after my last one, so I'm, I'm not up here because i got a, a bone to pick with any particular one of you. So this might not be something which you think you need to get on your knees and repent for this afternoon. You might, but this might be the passage which you need to keep in your head as we continue on with our rest of Romans, with the continue on with the rest of our books, when you go to your Bible studies, when you go to do your devotionals, to not harden your hearts. It might not just be you right now having had trouble with something that, you know, Pastor Jim said two weeks ago or whatever, but this is one of those passages which sharpens our swords, our swords of the Spirit that we keep in our sheaths. This warning of this so-called warning passage in the book of Hebrews says, do not harden your hearts to the Word of God. Israel hardened their hearts in the desert and provoked God to destroy them there. 
take care, lest there be evil, unbelieving hearts like this that exist in your own church or even in your own chests. Exhort other believers and let other believers exhort you so that you aren't led away from the church and the truth and um, follow the lies of sin. And don't forget that Israel failed to enter God's breast because of unbelief. This section of warning in Hebrews began, as we've seen in verse 6b, but as I mentioned before, it continues on to the end of chapter 4. Today we heard the first half of the warning of the Holy Spirit that he has to his church concerning the hardening of hearts. Um, In the next section, chapter 4, verses 1 through 13, the author will continue to exhort his readers and us to continue in faith in Jesus Christ, and will continue to use Psalm 95 as his text for doing so. So this is, in a sense, uh, my part one message is also part one of the Hebrew message, and part two will be part two, obviously. I think I can do the math on that one. No, no. For us today, uh, let's close, and let's give thanks to God for passages like this, which were put here out of love for our instruction and for our edification. This was here for our good. God wants us to understand these things out of love for us. He doesn't want us to perish in the wilderness. He wants us to make it to the promised land. Let's pray for God to open our eyes to the ways in which we may be hardening our hearts to his word right now. We don't want to be rebellious and obstinate like Israel was because it has real consequences. Amen. Our Father and our God, we... uh, We've heard these things. We've heard these warnings about hardening our hearts. We know, we should know how hard our hearts actually are towards so, so many things. So we pray, Lord, that you would soften our hearts, that you would remove any hearts of stone, replace them with hearts of flesh, that we would be attentive to what your Holy Spirit has to say to us, that we wouldn't look at this as some angry passage that we don't want to ignore, but we would recognize that, that you wrote these things in love to equip us for every good work. I pray for this church, Lord. I pray that we would be a people who loves your word, who loves what you have to say to us, a people who, if persecution should break out in this country, they would have enough evidence to convict us because we would be representatives of our King Jesus and our community would know it. I pray, Lord, for this congregation. I pray that you forgive us for our sins, which are many, Lord, let's especially pride. I pray that you would bless them, bless me, that we would be able to be blessings to each other and to others, that we would live lives which honor you and give glory to you. We pray this in the precious name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.